Both the Old Testament reading and this reading from the Gospel of Luke are stories of women who were grievously wronged by powerful men. The sins of David against Bathsheba are almost too gross to describe. The sins of Simon against the unnamed woman are more subtle but still destructive. In both stories, a prophet tells a story that invites the sinner to a self-awareness that may lead to repentance. The prophet Nathan tells David a story of a powerful farmer who lusts after the one precious sheep of a less powerful, less wealthy neighbor. The powerful farmer takes the poor farmer's sheep and kills it and cooks it for the benefit of his guest. The prophet Jesus tells Simon a story of two people, each of whom owed money to the same creditor. One owed the creditor more than a year's wages, the other owed the creditor one-tenth that amount, and neither could pay, and the creditor forgave them both. In response to Nathan's story, David demands justice for the poor shepherd. Then Nathan turns the tables and reveals that David is himself guilty of robbing a less powerful man. We rightly object to the patriarchal privilege being claimed here in the comparison of a human woman to a sheep, both presumably owned by their masters, though also precious to them. But we can also see right through Nathan's story to the sin at its heart. David had behaved like a king, not like a child of Yahweh. David had forgotten himself and who he served and had treated Bathsheba and her husband Uriah with the cavalier disregard that the powerful too often show the weaker and more vulnerable. Rather than being the protector of those who were part of his kingdom, acting as the incarnation of the true king of Israel, David exploited and misused and sinned against someone who ought to have been under his care. And so Nathan says, you are the one who have done this evil. And David is startled into awareness and repents. Jesus, too, calls for a response from Simon and his companions, all those who are whispering and muttering about the sinfulness of the woman washing Jesus' feet. Who, he asks, will, forgive their forgiving, will love their forgiving creditor more? The one who's forgiven a little or the one who has forgiven a lot? And Simon says, I suppose, the one who has forgiven a lot. Then Jesus turns the tables and reminds Simon of his failure to be hospitable allowing his guests to enter his home without the proper welcome. The rich and powerful Simon, at least in respect to the unnamed woman, had behaved poorly, like one without a need to show grace. But the woman, weaker in status and having less wealth, had opened herself fully in welcoming Jesus. She understood herself as one who had received grace and so was free and willing to offer that grace in the most extravagant manner. And her generosity, her free hand, her expression of faith, saved her. Neither of these stories is comfortable. Both are stories, I think, of women being victimized, Bathsheba by violence and rape and the abuse of power, and the unnamed woman by an entrenched righteous self-regard that easily condemned those more vulnerable. This is, I think, ugly stuff. I don't see any way around it. And I cringe. I cringe at the way both Nathan and Jesus seem to accept the outward manifestations of patriarchy, with Nathan counting women as the property of men, and Jesus assenting to Simon's characterization as, of the woman as a terrible sinner. It's also troubling, I think, that the texts treat both women as powerless, as victims in need of a male to rescue them, 
rather than as individual human beings having their own strength and will and sense of self. We know Bathsheba's name, but very little else about her. And the woman in Luke's story goes unnamed, and so remains a shadow figure less than fully realized. And I especially find David's quick repentance hard to take. It smells of the cheap cologne of an even cheaper grace, and, and oops, I messed up, that, that hardly, hardly seems sufficient to the occasion. It's not that I want David to suffer, because if that's all I want, I get my wish. David's sin has consequences that will trail him for the rest of his life and then move on to damage and wreck the lives of his children and grandchildren. Well, David suffers enough. If I'm honest, I think what I wish is that God would be slower to accept David's repentance, that God would withhold grace, at least temporarily, from David, that God would land hard on David with the arm of justice. Instead, David is absolved almost immediately, albeit with a warning of very bad things to come. Nathan reads him a litany of misery, but in the end tells David that the Lord has put away his sin. It all seems too quick, too easy. And I know it's not reasonable of me to expect this of a first century male, but I wish that Jesus had gone a step or two further and invited the woman to sit with him at the table to claim her rightful place in the company of the disciples. I wish that he would struck a better balance between her need for grace and Simon's. After all, whether it's a little or a lot, every last one of us remains in need of God's grace and is absolutely helpless and hopeless without it. In the end, does it really matter the amount of sin that needs to be wiped away? Isn't the calculation itself theologically problematic? Shouldn't we be less concerned about the size of the dead and more concerned with the size of the gift? The miracle is that there's grace at all. Not that it's available in larger quantities to those really sinful ones. The miracle is that God loves us at all. Not that some of us need more love than others. Shouldn't we pay less attention to the weight of human sin and more attention to the miracle that lifts that sin, lifts that weight from our shoulders? I recently had a conversation with a friend. It was one of those late night conversations, you know. Um, where everyone becomes more loquacious and more honest as the light gives way to shadows. Something about that movement from sunlight to stars loosens the tongue, makes it seem possible to really finally get to the heart of the matter. Maybe it's all an illusion. But there's something about sitting outside on a warm spring night that makes wisdom seem in reach. Anyway, we were talking into the night, and somewhere along the way we were talking about theories of the atonement. Yeah, just goes to show you the kinds of friends I have. Anyway, we were talking about theories of the atonement when, when one of us said that in the end, when all is said and done, what really matters, what really matters is that God loves us. No matter how it works, how our salvation came to pass, how exactly the cross figured into that salvation, what exactly happened three days later, what it all boils down to is this, God so loved us, Period. God so loved us. Well, maybe it was the stars overhead or the comfortable chairs or the free-flowing conversation, but for that brief moment, it really did seem as though we'd figured something out, that we'd grasped the tail of the comet, and so we're lifted into the heavens for a time, all caught up in the wonder and beauty and extravagant simplicity of it all. God loves us. That's it. That's what matters. That's the message. That's the point upon which the whole universe spins. God loves us. It's amazing. 
Now I'm as prone as the next person to pulling out all the equipment I need to dismantle such an assertion in the bright light of morning. I'm as quick as anybody to find caveats and qualifiers and adjustments and supplementary statements and corollaries. I, I'm as capable as, as you are of taking such a simple, simple statement apart and, and, and dragging it back down to earth and forcing it to submit to endless questioning until it begins to resemble my own smaller love. I'm quite capable of cutting God's love down to size. But you know, I can still feel a little bit of that glow of discovery. I can still hear just a little echo of that aha and remember what it felt like to be lifted off the ground in wonder at just how much God loves us and how that love covers a multitude of sins, including the sin of trying to displace that love with other more sound and rational theological formulations. Even now, two weeks from that night, I can still feel a bit of lift under my wings. And that lift, that little lift is enough for me to take another look at those texts and, and so look for some sign of that central reality that says it all. And our good friend Paul comes to our aid with his impassioned letter to the Galatians, reminding them and those who would tell them otherwise that salvation is a gift and that all we need to do is recognize it and say yes to it and not do anything that's going to hinder anybody else from doing the same. Paul tells his Galatian comrades that whatever bound them is now dead or they have died to it and that they've been given the gift of life in and through Jesus Christ. The faithful act of Jesus or our faith in Jesus is enough to lift the weight of sin and death forever off our backs. Any attempts by others, no matter how well-meaning or theologically sound or reasonable, any attempts to put that weight back on us ought to be rejected as attempts to nullify what cannot be nullified. That is the grace of God. If we need to keep on carrying that weight around with us in some pious effort at overcoming sin or proving ourselves worthy of grace or in some other way making our own way to heaven, then Christ died for nothing. The weight's been lifted, Paul says, once and for all. Let it go. Give thanks. God loves us, period. And that love is expressed most profoundly in Jesus Christ. And that love comes to us in the form of grace, extravagant, limitless, unimaginable grace. Grace that extends to Bathsheba in the voice of the prophet calling her abuser to account. Grace that extends to the unnamed woman in Jesus' assurance of welcome and forgiveness. That grace extends to old Simon and invites him to remember that he too has been forgiven. Now comes the big stretch. Because that grace extends even to David as Nathan assures him that already his sin has been put away. That God has already forgiven him. And that forgiveness remains even as the terrible consequences of David's choice unfold over the generations. Nothing is too heavy. Nothing is too heavy. There is no weight of sin that has not already been lifted in Christ. We may live in a world, we do live in a world, still struggling with the consequences of that sin and with its persistent attempts to regain its hold over us and our own persistent failures to remember who we really are and our tendency to act as though Christ died for nothing. But in the end, and when all is said and done, the very last word is and always will be this. God loves us. And God's grace is sufficient for us. And the weight of sin has been lifted from our shoulders forever. 
This morning we witnessed the testimony of our young sister Maria Waterfield. We heard of her commitment to Jesus Christ and her acceptance of the gift of grace offered to her by and through Jesus. We committed ourselves to welcome her fully into our community and to accompany her as long as our paths merge and to encourage her to keep on following after the one who called her. And as the water was poured over her bowed head, I trust that we all remembered what that feels like. I trust we remembered our own baptisms. And I hope remembered again just who we are in Christ Jesus. And as she stood and was embraced into our fellowship, I pray that each of us remembered that feeling too, the feeling of being embraced by God, whose love is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega, the opening line and the ending line of history. We witness that love embodied in a kneeling, kneeling young woman, her hair made wet by the water of baptism, dying with Christ and then being raised again with him, raised into everlasting life, raised into the never-ending love of God. One true and beautiful and holy thing to hold over against some hard texts and so make plain the truth and beauty within them. A bright and shining occasion that makes our hearts come alive with the joy of being loved and gives us the courage to look for something good and even the hardest story. Like sitting with our friends on a warm spring night, as we bear witness to this baptism and so recall our own, the truth of it all seems suddenly within our reach, the truth that is so much greater than whatever else claims us or tries to claim us. Even here, even now, the last word is the best word, is the only necessary word. God loves us. Christ loves us. God loves us all. Amen.